This is Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer with Baptist Memorial Healthcare, and this is another episode of Connecting the Dots. Hi, everybody. This is H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hey, everybody, I am Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today I am so incredibly honored that we have Dr. Ed Shine, a professor emeritus from the MIT Sloan School of Management. He has been an educator, consultant and coach for nearly 70 years in counting. He's considered one of the original thinkers in organizational development and a founding father of the study of organizational culture. He's published over 10 seminal books and countless papers, earning accolades and lifetime achievement honors in academia and business associations. In 2015, Ed and his son, Peter, joined to form the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute, or what some know as OCLI, based in Palo Alto, California. Ed and Peter have co-authored four books, including two cultural texts, Humble Leadership, and the new edition coming out soon of Humble Inquiry. Ed was educated at University of Chicago, Stanford University, and received his PhD in social psychology from Harvard. Peter Schein is a consultant and former technology executive, having held marketing and strategy positions at Pacific Bell, Apple, Silicon Graphics, and having led corporate development initiatives at Sun Microsystems. He was honored to join his dad in the family business in 2015, including co-authoring books and papers, consulting with companies on culture and leadership, and presenting the Shine perspective on organizational culture in the US, Europe, and Asia. He holds an undergraduate degree in social anthropology from Stanford University and an MBA from the Northwestern Kellogg School of Management. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Shine and Peter. Thanks for having us. Professor and uh, Peter, we are, you know, once again, just honored to have you guys here. And it's so great to see a, a father and son team uh, working together. And I know that you guys have, have dedicated y'all's entire life or entire career to helping organizations like us uh, develop their culture. And we're going to talk about your new book, Humble Inquiry, or, or the new edition of, of your book, Humble Inquiry. But first of all, when it comes to organizational culture, are there different cultures that are more suitable for different sectors? Uh, for instance, a culture in the manufacturing business or a culture in the healthcare business. Are, are there some cultures that are that are more suitable for different sectors or are there some universal truths uh, when it comes to comes to culture? I, I would, I'd like to get y'all's thoughts on that. Well, let, let me start on that one because I do think that one of the problems with the word culture is it, it covers too much. <laughs> and so the first point I would say is absolutely different occupations different sectors, different types of organizations have to evolve <clears throat> the rights and rituals and ways of doing things that enable them to learn and grow and be successful. So the culture of a hospital 
has to be what you need to learn to do to be a successful hospital. And that might be totally different from down the road, a car manufacturer has to evolve a learning process that will give them the ways and means of doing things, the assumptions, the way to think that will enable them to be a successful car business. So the first way to think about this in this context we're talking about is we're talking about medicine. So we're going to talk about the culture of healthcare, And we're talking about organizations like hospitals. So we can talk about the culture of your particular hospital. Or we could even talk about the culture of your system. Are there common assumptions and values that are very important for the whole Baptist system in your region? So think of culture as being a a rather local concept for your organization rather than some vague generality. But having said that, the most important principle of your culture is helping. Medicine is a helping profession. So whatever else your cultures are, they are based on this very deep assumption, do no harm, we're here to help, we're here to, to do positive things. And that will, as you'll see, lead to the humble inquiry notion. Just add a, a, a couple layers onto that. Um, you know, there's this famous idea that, that came from Peter Drucker that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. And um, that, uh, you know, Ed and I had a conversation about that. And um, Ed said, you know, it was very important for that to sort of validate, to kind of to to put culture into the C-suite where it belonged next alongside strategy. But on the other hand, it created this impression maybe among some that culture was just as easily manipulated as strategy is. And um, that's that's something that 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 you know we I guess we would argue fundamentally isn't true. There's a lot of things that you could change. There's a lot of levers that you can change this week, this month, this quarter, this year. But the idea that you can just sort of shift culture and change culture in the same way that you might pivot your strategy is probably oversimplifying. I mean, you know, you'll find Mm -hmm. cases where it can be done, um, but that might also be in a 10 person startup, not a 5,000 person hospital system. So Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's sort of one point. The, The other point is that there are lots of culture models that give you frameworks for how to think about um, what sort of constructive behavior and what's not constructive behavior. And so there's uh, th- there are ways of sort of deeply analyzing through surveys and and uh, all sorts of sort of deeper ethnographic methods how to kind of analyze your culture and benchmark it relative to other uh, companies even in the same business to see do we have a sort of a a positive constructive culture or do we have an antagonistic negative culture I mean I'm using labels that that uh, we have to keep fairly loose because every culture is unique, but 
uh, it sometimes it sometimes does help people to sort of think of those um, labels A and B. If I'm this, how can I be that? And um, so the, the the sort of continual kind of you know diagnostic or or maybe it's maybe that's too strong a term, particularly with the medical audience, but it's sort of a getting a feel for where we're at. Um, it's a loose process, but it's a helpful process. Um, the uh, the last point being, and hopefully this is implied, is that we don't want to be too objective about it. It's all, you know, culture is a very subjective topic. And, um, uh, you know, I, I guess Ed would want to uh, maybe go back to one of his mentors, Kurt Lewin, uh, who said that you don't really understand it until you try to change it. And so that in itself suggests how unique it's going to be and how, you know, Baptist needs to think about their culture, but they also need to think of each of the different hospitals and each, each of the different functions within the, the hospitals as ha each having their own unique subcultures that all have to mesh and hopefully align. Mm. It's really interesting, Peter. And, and thanks for bringing up the part about changing culture and how difficult or, or sometimes near impossible it is. Uh, yeah, I just joined Baptist a little over a year ago. And if you would have seen me and Skip especially, uh, a year ago, we would both be wearing uh, a suit and tie or a jacket and tie. Then COVID-19 came and we relaxed our, our dress uh, standards um, to no longer require that, um, even though a lot of our executives will, will still wear a tie and a coat. <laughs> One in particular that I'm thinking of has, has not changed to relax the standard. Um, but yeah, I know that's not it's not culture per se, but it does kind of reflect what the underlying culture is to a certain extent. Another example is when I was in residency, our internal medicine group, my internal medicine residency program, we all were required to wear a, a tie um, every day, whereas the ER docs never do. And, and you know, it's completely anathema. Or the pediatricians. <laughs> or the pediatricians. Uh, completely anathema to them to to put on a, a tie, even though we're, you know, we're still we're all treating patients, we're all treating patients in the hospital. And so I, I was just it would be interesting, I guess, if, if one or both of y'all could reflect on, you know, how does that relate to culture and, and what, uh, it, if at all, and, and what do you make of, of those observations? Well, culture ha as a concept consists of many levels. And there's the level of surface behavior that we all agree is the way we do things around here. And we call out in one of our, in the early books, the artifacts of the culture. This is what you see and hear. And those become rituals because they work. Uh, early on, you probably discovered that patients had more respect for what you had to say if you wore your white coat than if you showed up in shirt sleeves. And so somewhere along the line, the decision got made, you know, that's us. We're the white coat crowd. Uh, we're not informal. We're professional. And that gets embedded to the point where the original reason we did it was to gain respect. That underlying assumption may get lost in the behavior that 
why are we wearing the white coats? And there may be a time when to be really helpful to the patient requires much more informality. And so the, the culture change models have to accept the fact that there are going to be rituals and rites that have come to be embedded that have to be abandoned without abandoning the underlying assumption as to why you did it in the first place, namely a better relationship with a patient, respect, and so on, and replace the behavior with new behavior without changing the underlying assumption. So until you parse culture into these levels, what, what you behave, what you claim, and what your deeper actual assumptions are, I think change at the surface level is easy. So long as it doesn't undermine, if it undermines those assumptions, then the culture will kick back and, and you won't succeed in changing Maybe you won't ever succeed in changing the white coat because that is a deep symbol in certain situations. But the behavior is changeable. The underlying assumptions are much more stable and they are your identity and the reason for being. The do no harm, uh, if, if you see surgeons doing harm, I hope you have a peer system to get rid of them. Yeah, I, I'd just like to add on on that idea too that the 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 doctor wearing a tie is sort of a perfect example of um, an artifact that reflects the the internal learning and the external signaling in of your profession, and um, because you 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 need to project authority, you need to project. Um, uh, a certain amount of sort of buttoned upness, right? Because you're you're treating you know the thing that's most prescient, precious to a person, which is their health, and so it makes perfect sense that as an artifact and as a, as a complex of behaviors, you would you would adopt that. Um, but similarly, it makes even more sense in a way that the pediatricians are the first to to sort of let it go. Because with a kid, that might actually be too much projection of authority for the kid to be comfortable. So mm. you, can, you could sort of see how the, the, those adaptations, um, you know, sort of learning that what we say, you know, adapting sort of for external to the external environment for the survival of the function or the institution. Um, those are perfect examples of that. And you know, I, I'd be surprised if, you know, you didn't, if you abandoned ties because that's such an integral part of the occupational culture. We're, you know, here in Silicon Valley, um, right. boy, you can see a lot of ties and jackets in, in, you know, in tech companies. In fact, you might be ostracized or you'd be a sales guy if you showed up and wearing that. You certainly wouldn't be a, you know, highly regarded engineer if you ever wore a tie, right? <laughs> but, but um, you know, then you go over to the Stanford Healthcare, and just like you guys, they're all wearing coats and ties because, again, it's part of that occupational culture. It makes perfect sense. 
Well, it, it does vary by region, though. I interviewed at, at UCSF, and and they they did not require ties uh, for their residency program. They they weren't wearing them. And and if you go to the UK, they regularly they don't wear the white coats or ties because of infection risk, and they haven't been doing it for a while. Um, so I've been told, and so it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, if with the, the pandemic and, and uh, the realizations that ties are a, a vector for infection, white yeah. coats are, are filthy. There's been hundreds of studies showing it, whether or not that we, we as a group move more against it. And, and there's several outpatient uh, physicians that wear, you know, just like a professional short sleeve uh, polo shirt as opposed to a coat and tie, um, given those same infection uh, concerns. And so, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see if anything changed. If, if for Baptist corporate, um, I haven't noticed a change in our underlying culture since a lot of us have given up the artifact of the suit and tie. Skip, have you? I mean, do you have a? I mean, I, I feel like the culture is still very similar. And yeah, I, I, I haven't seen that. Not at all. Let, let me uh, let me kind of pivot a little bit the conversation towards. The humble inquiry, and mm -hmm. especially since we know a new edition is coming out, and and there's been, it's had such an impact that book on so many people. Um, let me start off with the simple question of what is humble inquiry? Well, it's it started with with the idea uh, in in the earlier book called Helping. I just differentiated lots of different ways that the professional, the helper, whether that's the doctor or the consultant, <clears throat> engages in building a relationship with whoever he or she is helping, the, the patient, the client. And the most obvious principle seemed to me you have to get to know who you're dealing with. You have to build a relationship with this other person. Therefore, you have to ask questions to which you do not already know the answer. Mm. If I say to a patient, uh, you're, all, you're, you're hurting a lot, right? I'm projecting my perception onto the patient and not allowing the patient to say, well, doc, actually it doesn't hurt much. I'm here for a different reason. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to prevent the truth coming out of the other person's mouth. Therefore, the basic definition of humble inquiry is ask questions to which you do not know the answer. You're ignorant. You need to find out. You're curious. That, that that's real. That that's that's so interesting. And and while I haven't I haven't read the book yet, I, I've read a lot about the book, and and I have a little idea of what humble inquiry is. And and you know, in medicine, we've always we're always told if if you would just be quiet and listen, the patient will tell you what's what's wrong with them. But but most of the time, you know. We don't do that. I, I'm I'm guilty of that. I mean, I, I'm I ask a question, and before the patient can really even answer it, I'm I'm thinking about the next question that I'm gonna that I, that I'm gonna make, and and most of the time, you know, it seems like after 
with certain certain patients, you, you know what's wrong with them right away, but other patients you, you don't. And 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 you know, I think that's a big that's a big problem in medicine. We we don't we don't we don't listen, especially physicians. Well, that's half of humble inquiry that it's not obvious from the title is that the the listening and responding is the second half of how you build the relationship. Because the goal is not for the doc to make the diagnosis. You may you may make the perfect diagnosis and have a patient who's gonna resist everything you tell them. Prescription. So your goal is not the diagnosis, but the relationship. And you won't build that relationship if you don't hear the answer and let the patient know that you have heard the answer. I'm not here because I'm not hurting. That should pique your interest and say, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why this person is here and acknowledge, okay, so you're not hurting, so why are you here? Uh, to acknowledge what, that you've listened. To uh, add why the word humble is in this and why this book is in what's called the Humble Leadership Series, um, because there's lots of other you know words that you might use to describe what we've just been talking about. Um, and humble has so many associations, whether it's your religious tradition or whether it's, you know, great leaders who, you know, Mahatma Gandhi was a humble person. That, that's all true. But we didn't we weren't going there. We're not qualified to 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 make those assessments or judgments. All humble meant in the, in these books is embracing that idea that in that here and now with that patient, you don't know what's going on. You don't have the answers. And especially in medicine where you're so highly technically trained and you know so much more than the patient does about what's going on, um, it's really hard to embrace that sense that you don't know. You, you, you go into that situation and there's, there's um, for a while at least, there's more you don't know than you do know. And mm. so that's all humble means to us is just embracing that that moment or that, you know, that first few minutes of, as Ed describes, relationship building, because it's through the relationships that that you start, you know, the, and the, the, those, the appropriate ways of inquiring that you start to actually um, resolve some of that humility, frankly. You, you start to learn enough that you can act. And it's equally relevant to talking that way to the nurse, to the tech, to the fellow doctor, to your superior, the same logic applies. You've got to build a trusting relationship. Therefore, talk to each of these parties from a humble inquiry point of view. If you're saying to a nurse, what's going on with this patient, mean it and listen rather than than just being pro forma or whatever. So it's, it's, we've used the patient analogy, but 
we're really talking about all your relationships in the system. Absolutely. We, uh, and, and for physicians, that is very hard for us to do sometimes because we, we are used to being dogmatic. We're used to giving orders, verbal orders or written orders. And, and as part of our Baptist management system, we're, we're all about continuous improvement. And, and, and one of the things that we would like to do and, and one of the reasons for this podcast is try to get to get our physicians engaged in that in that continuous improvement process. And, you know, a lot of times the people, the people who have the best answers are the people who are on the front lines taking care of the patients. And, and, and I think that's one thing that we as physicians have to do is we have to have enough humility that, that we can ask these people, you know what, we're trying to improve this process and we really don't know how. What do you think? And and that's just a um, for me, it's very, very hard because, you know, that's not how we were trained. We, we did get asked a lot of questions in our training and in our residency program. But but the attending who was asking us the questions, they already knew the answer. So and, and we knew that. But uh, it, it's uh, it's difficult. It, it, it's it's very uh, it's very interesting. And, and uh, I you know. It's just going to take a lot of work for me personally to to uh, shift, and but but I'm willing to try. You know, I, I just want to add, Skip. You you mentioned earlier the the idea of the the socio technical system, and um, you know, medicine or or healthcare is probably the most complicated socio technical system we can imagine, especially if you're a teaching hospital. Because not only are you a healthcare provider, but you're also a, a you know institution of of higher learning. Um, so the complexity is just you know it's just you know incredible. But the other thing for us as we think about it is that um, uh, you know there's there's few more technical disciplines than the you know the provision of cutting edge healthcare. So uh, but embracing the fact that the system has to be equal parts the technical delivery um, of the, you know, of the best treatments or the right answers and the the sort of social effectiveness of the entire system. So that, again, to, to Ed's point, it's not just the doctor-patient relationship, but it's also all of the complex um, social patterns that, that um, surround that you know, doctor-patient provision of 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 healthcare. So, um, embracing that idea that this isn't a uh, you know driven by hard science only because it's medicine, but the system of providing that the benefits of that hard science to to uh, patients. Um, is as much a socio process as it is a technical process. I think that that's really well said. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about while y'all were while y'all were discussing just the physician-patient interaction is there's a commonly cited statistic that physicians interrupt patients every 11 seconds, and I, I just wanted to get y'all's take on on 
on humble inquiry and that statistic, what does that say about the state of, uh, I guess, the, the physician-patient relationship? That, that must be an average because I know surgeons interrupt patients a lot more frequently than that. Well, yeah, exactly. I was just going to point out that uh, I've tried to ask that question for the last 10 minutes, but HF Mason just <laughs> consistently cut me off. Could I comment on that? I think this mindset of what is my job uh, becomes important. Is, is my job uh, to make a diagnosis and write a prescription? Or do I have to back up and say my job is to improve this person's health? If you take the, the broader goal, then you have to say to yourself, I need to know something about this person. I don't know how they live, where they live, what they do. And maybe that has very little to do with, with some of the professional sub, subsections, but it has everything to do, for example, with oncology or with pediatrics or uh, cardiology, where the person's lifestyle uh, will determine as much of their health as uh, the surgery you do on them. So I think humble inquiry in focusing on the relationships also implies your goal is not a quick fix. Your goal is to improve health, which often means getting involved with the lives of the patients in ways that you are quite ignorant of. You, you know, you give a prescription, you hand out the piece of paper, but you don't have any clue as to what they'll actually do with it. And that may not matter in some areas, but I think medicine <clears throat> being a socio-technical field is, aren't you discovering that how patients live and what they do and how they relate uh, does matter? to their ultimate health outcome. And therefore you start in that relationship with, with ignorance and curiosity. I think those two words are very important. You can be the world's best professional and be ignorant and curious of some of what you need to know in order to exercise your professional competence. I think the part about you know, that developing the relationship with the patient and, and getting beyond just the diagnosis is, is really important. Uh, when I was in medical school, we had, they taught us how to interview patients, actually. I mean, that was part of your curriculum. You, you did a, a lot of different interviews with standardized patients. And one of the things that they always emphasized was at the, the end of the encounter or the end, once you made the diagnosis or you thought you were on the way to making it, one of the questions that you needed to ask the patient was, and, and how does this make, how does this diagnosis or how does this condition uh, affect your life? How does it uh, influence your life? How does it make you feel overall? Um, and, and so that was something that they really emphasized. And I don't know if we do enough in the real world outside of that standardized patient interaction of, of getting that answer from the patient and really caring about what the answer is. And, and, and I think that a patient's, that that patients' expectations from their physician have changed. I know you've heard in the past, you, you you know, 
I don't care if that neurosurgeon is a jerk. You know, he can be the biggest jerk in the world, but as long as he can clip my aneurysm and, and, and do it in a safe way, that's all I care about. But I, I don't, I don't think it's that way anymore. I think that, that patients are looking for us to be, you know, to be, for lack of a better term, to be nicer, to be more engaging, to, to listen, to, to, to have more humility, uh, with them than they used to. And, and, and I don't know why that is. I, I don't, I don't know. Well, there is research specifically on cardiology surgery that uh, surgeons uh, who visit their patients in their home after the surgery have better outcomes than surgeons who say goodbye in the OR and uh, only check in periodically. So there's growing evidence that maybe not in every aspect of health, but in some of the critical aspects, there is demonstrable research-based, evidence-based data that getting more into the patient's lives influences the outcomes of even the surgery. Mm. Yeah, and you can also imagine that there's a different view that the patient's uh, sort of attitude shifts, sort of, you know, think pre-op and post-op, that your expectations pre-op may really be, I just want expertise, and your expectations post-op may be, I want to get better, and and that really might change how the, the surgeon needs to sort of work with that. Uh, with that patient, uh, you know, that, um, that's probably an oversimplification, but um, you could imagine there, the any patient goes through a sort of a life cycle of expectations sure. um, that their provider should should sort of be cognizant of. The other thing I was going to mention that, that we talk about in the book is um, a lot of, and in fact, there's a story at the beginning of Humble Inquiry that um, was is used to sort of highlight this idea of the culture of tell, which is a it's it, it's not uniquely you a U.S. thing, but it's a very strongly U.S. thing, um, where um, uh, we you know we want to sort of go in and sort of weigh in and broadcast or narrowcast what we know. We want to tell people what we know, and um, uh, you know that's that. That, that may be one of the things that sort of led to the, the amount of innovation that, that the U.S. has produced in 100 years. Um, but it might also not be the most helpful thing in certain um, sort of uh, interactions where the context is as or more important than the content of what, you know, of what you need to know and what you're trying to accomplish. So the the culture of tell, I think, you know, for Ed, it was there was also a deeper U.S. culture um, observation about how just, um, you know, our rugged individualism, um, you know, sort of, you know, drives us to 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 interact in certain ways that maybe aren't that helpful. Um, <laughs> uh, and. Um, but I guess, again, the point being, are you aware when you're starting to sort of fall into that culture of tell? And maybe if you train yourself to sort of 
to hear the voice? Am I starting to tell more than I'm asking? Mm. It will help sort of self-regulate. Well, to, to build on that, you know, Peter, you know, I was I was thinking of you and Ed recently when I was watching a NFL football game. That might be a little bit surprising, but the reason I, I thought of both of you is because in the game, they kept on making the statement that the receivers and the quarterback were not on the same page. And I thought about that for a second. I thought, here's elite athletes at the highest level, and they're not performing because they're, quote, not on the same page. And I, then I started to think about the social technical system that in healthcare, you can have some of the most educated people there are. And let's just use an example. You could have an ED uh, physicians and nurses and technicians that are highly educated with the best equipment, you could have the same situation in the radiology department and in the lab, but if the relationships between those areas are poor, then the outcome of the property would be the same, that they're not on the same page. Am I thinking about that correctly? Well, we have a wonderful example in the book that comes right out of professional football which was, in this case, the quarterback and the left guard who's there to protect him. This, the by the way, this is in the new edition, and I, it's not in the first edition. So, yeah. uh, okay. This is a new, a new story. The quarterback said to this left guard, you've got to do better in the next game. And that was the only quote in the paper. I we took that quote and say that's the tell mode. What if we imagine that same quarterback saying to the left guard at the end of the game, "Hey, we've got to do better because I got sacked too many times." That might elicit from the guard the statement that you're right. I have to do better, but let me tell you something you might not know, that when we play Green Bay next week, the guy they've got opposite me will beat me every time. He's just better than I am. So don't call plays. position, And let's tell the coach that. The, all that might come out if the quarterback had said we rather than I. Uh, and that's, to me, the important point, the missing information. And this is something Peter has talked about a lot. The questions we don't ask is where some of the critical information might be. Any idea uh, if that would work with a three-year-old? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny though. The other the other thing we've used this slide a few times, and and um, uh, you know I grew up in in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I, and so you know I come by being a Patriots fan honestly, right? You know, I, I, sure. But I'm you know I'm I'm a Tom Brady fan too, so it's pretty cool to see that that you know he's getting it done in Tampa Bay as well, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, at least for now. But but. The, the point being that's a slide um, that's a picture of Tom Brady passing to Julian Edelman. And it's one of these, you know, blind 
you know, location passes. He's 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 throwing to a space. And he just knows because he and Julian Edelman are so much on the same page at that point in time. He knows that that's where Edelman's going to be. And it's because we try to make the arguments because they spend a lot of time together. They spend, they know each other really well. They've developed what we call a level two, um, maybe even level three relationship where it's, it's so intimate um, in a professional way. But they're so, so tight and they practice together so much um, that, uh, you know, they, they can anticipate each other's moves and mm. they can, you know, and, and I can imagine with surgical teams, you're doing the same thing. You're you're you know each other well enough that you can, you know, uh, you know, move into space knowing that the other person is going to be there. Well, that's a great example you just gave. I remember hearing a story once between the famous Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. And Jerry Rice made the statement that while he was running a route, he could see, based on what Montana was doing with his eyes, what was about to happen. And I, to me, that I was marveled at that type of connection. But you brought up something really good, Peter, about relationship. And I know that in a lot of uh, the books that I've listened to, uh, you know, I think it's, I may be wrong, but I believe it's like minus one, one, two, and three. Right. And you give an example uh, in one of the books about, uh, and I'm going to kind of pull Dr. Mason into this example. You give an example, and if I state it wrong, Peter, please, you know, let me know, that about many times a surgeon might say, Hey, if I do something wrong, my people know they're supposed to speak up. But the reality is when you talk to those people and interview them, they're not going to speak up. And it seems as if that's because of the type of relationship, you know, that that the doctor might be thinking they have a level two relationship when in reality they only have a level one. Am I thinking about that correctly? Just one quick comment, and then I think Ed will add to the, this, is that one of the things that that we we know from talking about these relationships, it, particularly in a hierarchy, is one person at one level may view it as a level two personalized relationship, yeah. whereas the person who reports to them says, no, 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 that's a level one relationship. That's, I'm, I don't, I do not have that same level of psychological safety that that person talking to me might have. Mm. And, um, so, Ed, do you want to comment further? Well, I, I think the, the whole idea of, of psychological safety, which now everybody's talking about, is, is based on the idea that we build organizations on transactional level one relationships which depend on distance between people, particularly probably between doctor and nurse, uh, where there's a history of surgeons yelling at nurses, a lot of unpleasant stuff historically that theoretically is getting out of the system. But the, the point is, if the doctor, if the surgeon and the nurse develop a relationship of knowing each other to the point where they can more or less predict what each other's behavior will be, they won't feel like yelling at 
each other. There mm. be another human being there. The only way we can be uh, so transactional and impersonal is because we don't know the people. And that's what's got to change. And I know my, my son-in-law surgeon, he's a children's spine surgeon. He takes time with, with new people in the OR because he doesn't always have a dedicated team. He takes time through the checklist to carefully look at each person, ask the nurse to go through this very slowly, ask, are there any questions? Try to communicate that he sees each of these people as human beings rather than as roles. And the reason for that, he would say, is that he wants them to speak up if they see something wrong. It's not going to help anybody if they feel cowed and subordinate and scared and let things go by. So I thought this was a very creative use on his part of the checklist. He didn't have time to get to know them outside, so he used a few minutes of the initial part of the operation to build, at least for the moment, some relationship with each person in the room. That's a, that's a great just point. The, the, uh, just a quick other quick angle on that is that the checklist is a, you know, and a good example of a technical system. And so he didn't have to do anything to change the technical system, but he used the technical system in, in order to address the social system. Yeah, exactly. And so he didn't have to change the social system either. He just combined them in a way that, that allowed for a greater communication. You know, He's killing two birds with one stone. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I know we're, we're we're getting close, I guess, to the end of the time that y'all were gonna agree to be with us. But um, one of the questions I, I really wanted y'all to be able to address is with the new version of your book. What what would you say are, are the main differences, or, or what new things have you learned with the new book from from the old book? Well, do you want to go first, Peter? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, so we've updated the stories. You know, these books are are only as readable as they have stories. So we've changed the stories around a little bit, but then we also added um, more in the way of kind of exercises that somebody can do. Um, we were joking with our publisher that um, in some respects, um, antithetical to how people normally read books, we really want them to read the preface and we really don't want them to miss the appendix because the appendix has a bunch of exercises that you can do. Um, obviously, the flow of the book is the flow of the book, and, you know, we hope people will, you know, find it readable. Um, but the, uh, the preface is sort of setting the context of where we think we are in the U.S. and to, to a lesser extent in the world. Um, but it is, it, it, it sort of addresses the idea that, um, one thing that the last sort of five or 10 years has started to do is started create, creating these different fact universes um, so that people live in different fact universes. And, you know, obviously mass media has not helped this. It's created this maybe, or you know, I, I don't know which is first the chicken or the egg here, but it, it's 
it's a re it's true that we live in different fact universes and part of what humble inquiry is supposed to be about is bringing that out into the open that we have to start accepting the fact that um some person's facts and another person's alternative facts need to be resolved if we're going to actually build um you know actual person-to-person -person relationships um, and then the appendix just again it's it's we didn't want to put it in the flow of the book um, because you don't want to be reading along and then have a half an hour exercise to do. Um, <laughs> not when you're reading a book. Yeah. So, but we well, do I, hope people will appreciate it because it's a it's a it's a it's a good learning tool. Well, I can't when, speak when for we, the I can't speak for the internist, but I know that HF is not going to miss the appendix. I hope. <laughs> no, no, I go straight for the appendix. That's right. When when can we expect it at our uh, favorite uh, bookstore? Could I underline one thing that uh, that Peter said? This fact issue, I think medicine has become more complex, and uh, therefore using humble inquiry to find out what is known and what's accepted and what's controversial becomes that much more important. I think in a world where we know what truth is, we can quickly move to exercising it. But in a world where we don't know for sure, let's even say healthcare. Let's say the, the, the kid with, with the complex problem living in a, a new world where all sorts of new things are happening to the kids' parents or the, uh, the problems of hypertension and so on. We, we need to use humble inquiry just to find out what's known and what isn't known. And what, what some, I mean, one story that, that maybe Peter should have told at some point, but I'll tell it quickly. When we were dealing with the neurosurgery residents, we had a, an exercise where we had people describe their role sets with their subordinates, their peers, and their bosses. And one of the, <clears throat> the minus one relationship is where you're, you're subordinate and being dominated we discovered when we had them do the exercise that several of these residents said we have a bunch of minus one relationships that surprised us mm. why would that be and a few of them said i'm i'm dramatizing this so and keep this among us professionally i don't want to diss any any given neurosurgery department but a couple of them said, well, what if you've got a boss who's incompetent? And we probed what that meant. What it meant is that these young residents had acquired a whole bunch of tools in their medical education that maybe their boss, who was 20 years older, actually had not been exposed to. So from the young residents' point of view, their boss was incompetent. You know, it's a it's like a seven year residency, and in something like neurosurgery, that probably changes every year. Oh, so yeah. they're you know they're they're um, you know they're seeing new stuff continually, and so in their frame of reference, 
you know, a, uh, you know, senior faculty or attending who was trained 20 years ago is trained in something completely different. <laughs> so the implication of that is the 20 year senior guy has to use humble inquiry to find out what his junior residents know and has to be prepared to be humble in the in the situation where his junior residents may know something that he needs with his patients. Scary but real real fact. In in all likelihood the senior one does know that, right? Because you know you're you're board certified. You have to stay current, obviously, but it it's it, at the same time, if you're not using humble inquiry to sort of tap all of that knowledge in the room, um, because you've established openness and trust, there's information left on the table, and you know, mm. you, know you want don't want to leave stuff on the table. I think that's particularly true in surgery. Yeah, there was one paper that showed I, I don't remember how many years ago it was but that uh, physicians were at their peak knowledge about five to 10 years out, out of residencies when they really hit their stride. And I always like to point that out to HF since I'm right <laughs> in that window. It yeah. would not be humble on my part. But. <laughs> I'm on my way down. <laughs> well, Dr. Shine and Peter, we, we are so incredibly grateful that you spent time with us. I'm gonna, I'm gonna end with asking one more question because uh, I thought about this and I would be a little surprised had both of y'all not thought about this also. We're in the middle of a, a global pandemic. And for the last year, our entire world has changed. And, you know, a lot of us really don't know what that world will look like in the future. But, um, you know, most of the relationships and the interactions that are occurring for the last year and, uh, and maybe even moving forward, will be completely on video like we're doing right now, looking at each other uh, and maybe a significant reduction in getting to meet people in person and shake their hand or her hand. What's your thoughts, um, Peter and Dr. Shine, on, on um, both humble inquiry and, and culture? How do we, does that mean we need to work harder to build the relationship? Or what, what thoughts might you have had on that? I, I want to work on the word harder. That's the wrong word. Different. I think we are learning an enormous amount from this year with COVID about relationships. And in some respects, I think the sacred cow of we must have face-to-face -face meetings is is being uh, challenged i think we are seeing examples uh from from medicine in particular where people have had to uh count on each other at a distance and have found ways to do it or have had to build relationships very quickly with minimal face time they had to sort of trust each other from the get-go and what it has revealed is that the distant relationships, the transactional ones, which often were uh, impersonal and competitive, are being forced 
to be more personal and collaborative, even virtually. That the virtual doesn't prevent you from being positive, collaborative, and humble and helpful. It's your choice. I can compete with you and try to be smarter than you, or I can say, how are we going to make this podcast work? And I think the, the ability and necessity for these more collaborative relationships. And I guess I would want to add to that, Skip, that I think one thing that we've all seen, at least in the U.S., but I think this is probably true globally, that we all sort of realized this was awkward and hard. And I think we all we we all embraced it. And I again I'm saying we all, but I think generally my experience has been that people embraced it with their own sense of humility to say this isn't entirely comfortable, but we're gonna make the best of it. And when my dog barks or when my cat does something funny in the background, or you guys see that there's this funny thing on my wall that says Munion's Pawpaw, and you're thinking, wait, Pawpaw, that's sort of a Southern thing. So maybe- Picking up Pawpaws, put them in the basket. What's Peter doing with a Pawpaw poster on his, his, you know, but but that's good because you could be curious about that. And um, so what would worry me more is if we didn't, you know, embrace that that there is a little intimacy that we get out of zoom that we didn't have when we showed up in a conference room because we were told to go into a meeting and we showed up in our role and we never got out of our role we just you know did played our part in that dance and didn't get it all personal i like the way zoom has brought some personal back into work wow Wow, great, great, great insight. And I say uh, Zoom, but WebEx. I know we're yeah, WebEx today. Right now. I think I think that's great insight. Well, uh, you know, I know I speak for Dr. Mason and Dr. Lancaster when I say uh, Ed, Dr. Shine, uh, and Peter. Thank y'all so much for your time today. Thank you for the great work that y'all are writing. We are so excited about the new edition of Humble Inquiry coming out in February. I know that I've already went to Amazon and purchased uh, many copies, and uh, I've actually checked it often to see if Amazon will let me know when I'm gonna get it. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, really appreciate you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you, both. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for having us.